0: marketing wizards found them software engineers found that project manager i could never seem to hire and found linkedin jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience in fact 86 percent of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com spoken that's linkedin.com spoken terms and conditions apply welcome back crimeaholics it's your host holly and i am back today with another solved murder case for you all As you guys know, we do a large majority of our cases in the United States, but I try to also be aware of cases that have taken place or are currently taking place outside of the country. Today's case is one that I stumbled upon while looking into another case, and it really caught my attention because of some of the crazy details as well as a very chilling mugshot. Today's case is taking us all the way over to the United Kingdom. Let's go ahead and get into the details of the murder of Sadie Hartley. Sadie Hartley, whose maiden name was Cook, was born in Newark, England in 1955, and she and her six other siblings were raised by her father, Roland, and her mother, Olive. Her father worked as a long-distance truck driver, while her mom got to stay at home with the children. Growing up, Sadie and her siblings were all very close and had a very strong bond and connection amongst all seven children. From everything that I have learned about Sadie and her upbringing, she had your normal childhood. She and her entire family would take family vacations every year, making incredible memories, and just drawing closer and closer together as they grew and matured into the people they became. Sadie's parents had really high standards for their kids, They wanted to make sure that anything that their children did in life, that they did it with max effort and tried their very best. One thing that was always known to be important for the kids was their education, and they were really encouraged to focus on education in their lives. At grammar school, Sadie was a top student and did amazing and went on to attend the University of Brighton, where she obtained a degree in biological science. When she graduated, she secured an incredible job at a pharmaceutical company called Janssen. As the years went on, she ended up working her way up in this company, and she achieved some really amazing things. Julie Taylor would later tell Manchester Evening News that Sadie was a very driven woman within her work. She had a very big role. Most people working within the pharmaceutical industry have a passion for it. Sadie had a drive for it. When talking about Sadie as an adult, she was always described to be an incredible friend and mother. She was one that you could always depend on to be there for you no matter what. She was always level-headed and cool and had an incredibly kind heart. Her children were her absolute pride and joy. In 1981, Sadie met a man by the name of Gary Hartley, and he was an advertising director. From my understanding, it was Sadie's position at Janssen and Gary's position as an advertising director that made them cross paths, and the two of them really hit things off. The two eventually got married, and I wasn't able to find exactly how fast it was that they got married, but I do know that after 10 years of marriage, they welcomed their first child, which was a baby boy that they named Harry. Just over a year later, Gary and Sadie welcomed their second child. This time, it was a little girl named Charlotte. When Sadie had both of her children, she took as little maternity leave as possible because she was so driven and so excited to get back into work. That's just how much she loved her work life. And her friend said that this was just Sadie. She had this desire to make her workplace a better place and to do whatever she could within the pharmaceutical world to make it a better place. Fast forward a little bit to the year 2000. Sadie and the woman I mentioned earlier, Julie Taylor, who happened to be a very, very close friend of hers, came up with this idea to begin their own company together. And so the two of them launched Hartley Taylor Medical Communications in 2000 things in her professional life were falling into place. She was following a dream of hers by starting this new business. She was excelling with that new business, and she was just absolutely on cloud nine, loving what she was doing within the work world. But her home life, on the other hand, was struggling. After some time, when it seemed like things were just not going to get better between her and Gary, the two of them decided that it would be best to part ways and get a divorce. After the divorce, Sadie really began focusing on herself. She spent most of her adult life being career driven and career focused. She was a mom and a businesswoman. But after this split with her husband, she just wanted to learn more about who Sadie was. So she started to make a conscious effort to do things just for herself. She would take these vacations, which included trips to Morocco, where she would spend days riding horses, and she would plan up to three skiing trips every single year for herself. On top of exploring more, she purchased her own home in Cheshire, England, and began casually dating. In 2002, she met a man by the name of Ian Johnston, and with Sadie's busy life, the two would really only see each other a few times a year. They obviously were interested in each other, but it seemed like the timing was never right for them, and life was just too hectic and too busy. After a few years of attempting this relationship, they kind of just let it die. It just kind of fizzled out. It clearly wasn't going to work out for them. Sadie just had too busy of a life, and he was busy as well. Ian would later recall Sadie as being the hardest working person that he had ever met. So years go by, and Sadie is just doing her thing, living her life as this incredible powerhouse of a woman. 2010 rolls around and Ian at this point had finally retired from his job as a firefighter and so that freed up a lot of time for him to figure out what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. With his work schedule out of the way, he and Sadie rekindled things and after they reconnected, Sadie purchased another new home. And she bought this house so that she and Ian could move in together and hopefully begin building a life as a couple. This home was a beautiful home that was located in Helmshore and had plenty of room for them as it was a five-bedroom home surrounded by beautiful trees. So to really understand how this case plays out, I need to kind of step aside and explain another player in this story, and that is a woman by the name of Sarah Williams. At the moment, it might seem like her story is irrelevant, but it's important to really give you the backstory on who she is. So Sarah Williams at the age of 17 began dating a very much older man and by much older I mean he was 57 and again she was 17 and from my understanding this relationship was more of a sugar baby and a sugar daddy situation And if you're not familiar with those terms, a sugar baby is usually a significantly younger woman who begins seeing someone for the purpose of them providing for them financially. It's typically to benefit the sugar baby in some form or fashion. And then the sugar daddy is the male who provides these things for these younger women. Typically, these types of relationships also include some sort of favors, such as companionship, but most of the time, they kind of revolve around sexual relationship and sexual things in nature. I also want to note that a male can be a sugar baby and a female can be a sugar mama, but for this particular story, Sarah was the sugar baby and this 57-year-old man was the sugar daddy. And this man was actually a very married man with a whole life and a whole family at home. But this man provided financially for Sarah. Now, Sarah says that she had experienced some trauma within her life that kind of turned her into the person that she became. When she was a teenage girl, she was very big into horseback riding, and she spent a lot of time at the stables. When she was 13 years old, she was leaving the stables one evening, and she was actually abducted by a man and held for over six hours. During this time, Sarah was assaulted, and as you can imagine, that would be very traumatic and a very serious event for anybody. I can imagine not only the typical physical trauma that she endured, but the mental and emotional trauma as well. And things of this nature definitely can affect your life and have a huge impact on you and really ultimately shape your life. In 2006, Sarah moved out of her mom's house into a different house that was bought mostly with her 57-year-old sugar daddy boyfriend's money. Not only did this older man help provide a roof over her head, but he was also transferring money into her bank account every single week. Every week, this man would transfer £320, which in American money equates to about $385. On top of doing all of this, this man would take Sarah on lavish vacations, and they usually took up to 12 vacations a year. And according to the Express, one of these vacations was a three-month long skiing trip to Calgary in Canada. In the early stages of their relationship, Sarah really wanted this man to leave his wife and be with her. And when he refused, she became angry and upset. However, she wasn't that upset because their relationship went on for 18 years. And I'm not sure how much this man's wife truly knew about what was going on. In one article I had read from The Express, it stated that Sarah said that his wife knew within the first few months. But I'm not sure how accurate that is, because I briefly saw something that said that Sarah used to hide out in the bathroom so his wife wouldn't see her. Again, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I do know that this relationship lasted 18 years Just a few days before Sarah's 30th birthday, she drove past a ski resort called the Chill Factory in Manchester. Apparently, this place is UK's largest indoor ski slope. This place is a pretty awesome looking place, and Sarah loved it so much there that she spent so much time there that eventually they hired her as a sales advisor. While she was there, she ended up meeting a ski instructor, and the two of them began dating. So not only was Sarah in this long-term relationship with this sugar daddy, but she was now in this relationship with a ski instructor at the Chill Factory Indoor Ski Center. After a brief time of dating, Sarah's original sugar daddy boyfriend was not a fan of this relationship, and he was pretty jealous about it, and he made her break things off. Not long after that relationship ended with the ski instructor, she started dating another man. This time, this relationship lasted longer, and it was this man, whose name was Andy Poole, who had told Sarah that she either needed to choose to be with him or choose to be with that older sugar daddy boyfriend. Ultimately, Sarah picked the older boyfriend, and so she and Andy went their separate ways. So this is where Ian Johnston comes into this story. Ian and Sarah had met each other while they both worked at the chill factory. Ian was also a ski instructor there, and he and Sarah had discussed her getting some ski lessons to better improve her skills. They exchanged numbers, but instead of texting about ski lessons and when they were going to get together for those, they ended up chatting it up, and the relationship quickly turned into an intimate one. There are differing stories from both Ian and Sarah about what all their relationship entailed. According to Sarah, this was a very much a real deal relationship. They were truly for sure dating in her eyes, and they both were very into each other doing the whole dating shebang. But for Ian, he claims that that wasn't the case. This was a pure fun interaction between the two of them and it was strictly for the purpose of sex and entertainment in his eyes. And this relationship between Sarah and Ian took place in 2012. And it's important to stop here and note that yes, earlier I mentioned that in 2010 Ian and Sadie decided to try the relationship once more after the first time it was too much to juggle. But after they decided in 2010 to get back together, the two still had somewhat of a rocky relationship. There would be times that they would be doing well and everything was fine. And then there were other times that things would get tough in the relationship and then they would call it quits. But every time they'd call it quits, they would end up back together working things out. So it was during one of these times that they were off as a couple in 2012 that Ian Johnston met Sarah Williams. The relationship or whatever you want to call it between Ian and Sarah only lasted for a month because Ian called things off because he once more got back together with Sadie. When he ended things, Sarah spiraled into this crazy obsession with Ian and was completely jealous and angry that he ended their quote-unquote relationship. And from the sounds of it, Sarah wasn't used to this kind of denial and rejection. She seemed like the type of woman who was always in control of the relationships and when they'd end. So this was new for Sarah to be essentially dumped and she did not take it well. When Ian Johnston ended his month-long relationship with Sarah Williams, she went crazy with jealousy and became obsessed with Ian. For years, she poured all that anger and hate into breaking Sadie and Ian up. She plotted, planned, and schemed many ideas on how to ruin their relationship, and she did so with a very close friend of hers named Katrina Walsh. Katrina Walsh was 20 years older than Sarah, but the two of them met at the stables where Katrina gave lessons and they became friends over the years because they both shared a love for horses and horseback riding. The two women met when Sarah was 17 years old and they formed a very close bond and friendship over the years. Katrina married a man in 1984 named Kevin Walsh, but after 24 years of marriage, Kevin left Katrina for another woman in 2008. When Katrina's husband left her, she really clung to Sarah to be there for her during that time, and this is when the two became even closer. Sarah was there to pick Katrina up off the ground during what was the hardest time of her life, and she was an incredible support for her and the friend that Katrina could call at any time of night and Sarah would be there. In one of the articles I read about Katrina, her ex-husband Kevin describes Katrina as being someone who lived in a fantasy world. He said that it was always harmless and was stuff like dragons and that type of thing, But those who knew the two women said that Katrina was always fascinated and almost in awe of Sarah and who she was. So now that we laid out who these two women are, let's get into the details that transpired on Thursday, January 14th, 2016. This day started off as any ordinary day for Sadie. Ian was out of the country on a skiing trip and was due back within a few days, so she was home alone at their house. Sadie woke up that morning and got herself ready for work. She had a full day of work, and after work, she swung by the stables where she paid to board her horse. She went to check on her horse and tend to it before she headed back to her house for the evening. On the morning of January 15th, Sadie didn't show up for work, and this immediately set alarms going off for all of her co-workers. This was not like Sadie at all to miss work. As I said earlier, she was a very driven and passionate person about her job and the impact that she was making in the pharmaceutical world. She just wasn't one to no call, no show. After trying to get a hold of Sadie for a few hours one of her coworkers decided at this point the best thing to do was to call the police because if Sadie Hartley didn't show up with no explanation the only explanation for that is that something terrible was wrong the police agreed to go and do a welfare check on Sadie and when they arrived and knocked on the door nobody answered Now, the police somehow let themselves in, and I'm unsure if that was because the door was left unlocked. I couldn't find the exact details on that, but nowhere did I find it stating that they forced entry into the home, so I'm going to assume that the door was left unlocked and they let themselves inside. When they went in, they found Sadie Hartley deceased on the floor, and immediately it was very apparent that there had been a massive and brutal struggle that had taken place. The autopsy determined that 60-year-old Sadie Hartley had been tased with a stun gun and stabbed 41 times. Among those 41 stab wounds, Sadie also had defensive wounds on both of her arms, where it had appeared that she held her arms up to fend off her attacker. She also had slash marks to her stomach and a slash across her face, as well as a couple puncture wounds to her head. After finding Sadie inside her home, the authorities immediately contacted her children, as well as Ian. And what is sad about all of this was that this was supposed to be a very happy time for Sadie's daughter, Charlotte. The day before Sadie's murder, Charlotte had actually gotten engaged. So here is this young woman in the happiest time of her life and so ready to begin planning her dream wedding with her mother beside her, only to have her mother ripped away from her. How completely tragic for this family and truly my heart goes out to them as they were supposed to be planning a beautiful wedding but instead they had to plan Sadie's funeral. After speaking with Sadie's boyfriend Ian they pieced together pretty quickly someone who may have wanted Sadie dead and that person was Sarah Williams. Sarah Williams was arrested on January 17, 2016, just three days after the discovery of Sadie's mutilated body. The next day, Sarah's good friend Katrina Walsh was also arrested in connection to Sadie's death. Now, the authorities pieced all of this together really quickly and come to find out Sarah and Katrina thought that they were planning out the best way to get away with murder. This had been a plan that the two of them had been working on for 18 months before they executed it. And on top of all of this, the more they looked into things, the more they learned about Sarah. Sarah had sent a letter to Sadie pretty much trying to expose Ian for this alleged affair with her, and this took place in September of 2014. I'm going to read a portion of the letter for you guys just to show kind of what was going on in Sarah Williams' mind. Dear Sadie, I think you should know that Ian has been cheating on you for over a year. He's been having an affair with me since returning from Camp Suisse in August 2013. By his own admission, Ian is not in love with you, never has been, and never will be. The lack of any form of chemistry or spark between you has been mentioned several times by different people who have no vested interest in either of you. The fact he doesn't love you is blatantly obvious for anyone to see and clearly backed up by the way he is behaving. We have been sleeping together and everything else that goes with it, week in and week out for some considerable time now. Have a look around the house. There's plenty of my things around the place. Has he even changed the sheets since we were last in there? The sex is unbelievably fantastic, the best he's ever had by a really, really long way. We have never been able to get enough of each other. Should you choose to talk to him about this, bear in mind it was not a one-off, an accident, or mistake, or any other form of excuse. This was a choice made freely over and over and over again. For now, more than 12 months because it was what he wanted to do. So I just want to take a second to remind everyone that this letter was sent in September of 2014. Ian and Sarah ended their physical relationship in 2012. From that point in 2012 until Sadie was murdered, Ian and Sarah had no physical affair. And when things ended between them, they had only been in this relationship or whatever you want to call it for a month before Sarah spiraled into this obsession with him. Through the investigation, however, they found out that though Ian and Sarah did not have a physical intimate relationship anymore and Ian would say that she was obsessed with him and that she made things up in her mind, he also didn't completely shut Sarah out either and he would frequently text with her. From everything that I could find, Ian never really told Sarah to leave him alone. He didn't block her number. He didn't file any kind of harassment reports. He didn't do anything that you would think someone would do if someone was truly being a crazy, obsessed, delusional person. When this letter came in from Sarah, Ian finally cut things off. At this point it was clear that she was a problem. She was ultimately trying to ruin his life by sending such a wild and false accusations in a letter to his girlfriend. And mind you, this letter goes on and on about how Sadie was allegedly blackmailing Ian, how Sadie was buying Ian's love and affection, and honestly it all just sounds so absurd. So again, that letter was sent September 2014. In May of 2015, Ian and Sarah happened to see each other at the indoor ski center, and for whatever reason, even though he knew what kind of person she was, this encounter kind of reopened things again, and the two of them once more began communicating through text messages. A month before Sadie's murder, the Chill Factory Ski Center held a Christmas party, and pictures have since been released of this party. In many pictures, you can see Sadie and Ian sitting together looking comfortable and happy together enjoying their time. But when you look a little bit closer at these pictures, you can spot Sarah Williams in the background sitting not far from where Ian and Sadie were seated. What's crazy to me about these pictures is that when these pictures had been taken, Sarah and Katrina had been plotting Sadie's murder For 17 months. So it's kind of eerie to think about that her murderer was just sitting right behind her and likely was thinking about her plot that she was hatching while she was sitting there looking at Sadie. It just goes to show that you truly don't know what people are capable of. Now the month before this Christmas party in November of 2015, according to the Manchester Evening News, Sarah had purchased a GPS tracking device and placed it on Ian's car. She tracked his every move at all times of the day. So leading up to the actual murder, Ian was continuing his conversations with Sarah through text messages. And I hate to say it, but these text messages weren't quick, hey, how's your day kind of messages. Just days before the murder, Ian and Sarah were exchanging some pretty racy texts, and on top of the text messages, some sexually explicit pictures were exchanged as well. In a sense, it seemed like Ian was slightly leading Sarah on, which ultimately seemed like it fueled the fire for her plot. Now, when they arrested Katrina and searched her home, they found years upon years of diaries that she had kept. And these diaries are essentially how the authorities were able to figure out that there had been over a year's worth of planning that went into this murder plot. And these diaries were a huge help to piece together the exact timeline of events. An entry from September 2014 read, Sarah came home, so we caught up in endless murder plots for Ian's other half. Another entry from June 2015 said, We're also seriously talking of getting rid of her opponent. I agree. It's probably a good play. She does seem to be a totally evil bitch. Two months later, she wrote, Wow. I may get to be instrumental in helping remove the awful woman. This may happen. Wow. I'm unexpectedly excited by it. I have no moral qualms. Just as serious, don't let us get caught. In September, Katrina wrote about an idea that she and Sarah had for their murder plan. And it was a way that they thought would be a great way to throw off the authorities and for them to think it was someone else who committed the murder. This idea that she wrote about was that the two women would place an ISIS flag at Sadie's home after the murder. So when the authorities started looking into the murder, they'd assume that it was some sort of an ISIS attack which all of these writings and things she talked about just seemed odd. And it's almost as if this was a game to Katrina. If you notice, she speaks about Sadie as being Sarah's opponent. She talks about how she feels like this is a good play to get rid of her. And if you look into her diaries further, there are a lot more entries that are just oddly worded and written. And this kind of goes hand in hand with what Katrina's Ex husband Kevin said about her. He said that she was always kind of in a fantasy world. It seemed like to Katrina, this entire plot was a game, that this was some weird fantasy world that she was living in. And Kevin had even said that there were times where it seemed like Katrina couldn't really depict fact from fiction. About a month before the murder, in December 2015, Katrina wrote, I will get a trip to Germany out of this. Took ages to wind down. All of this excitement of plotting the perfect murder. Authorities also learned that the tracking device was actually ordered by Sarah, using Katrina's credit card, and that Sarah was going to give Katrina cash for it. It was through this GPS tracker that Sarah and Katrina had even learned where Ian and Sadie lived. Once they figured this out, the two women would do multiple drive-bys to get a feel for the home and the surrounding area, and just to scope things out to help them further their plan. According to the Mirror, Sarah even went as far as purchasing a second car with a false license plate so they wouldn't be detected. That is how invested in this entire murder plot she was. Enough so to go and buy a second car to try and not get caught. Now, if buying a second car wasn't good enough... A week prior to the murder, Katrina delivered a bouquet of flowers to Sadie's home, making sure that Sadie answered the door so that Katrina could look her in the face and know what she looked like and to also further get a little bit more of the lay of the house. Authorities also learned that Katrina and Sarah took a trip to Germany just before the murder, and this is when they purchased a 500000 volt stun gun. This was the stun gun that was used to incapacitate Sadie. The investigators were also able to obtain surveillance footage of the two women in Germany purchasing this stun gun. While in Germany, they also purchased boots from a shoe store and they made sure to buy these boots several sizes too big, once more thinking that they'd be able to throw the authorities off. After their arrests, both of their homes were searched. As we've learned, so far, Katrina's house had those damning diaries. But over at Sarah's house, they found that the place had been completely cleaned, very thoroughly, from top to bottom with bleach. But they meticulously went through her home anyway, and they were able to discover small traces of DNA on Sarah's bathtub, as well as a pair of glasses that belonged to her. Authorities would later positively identify this DNA as belonging to Sadie Hartley. There were two items, though, that the investigators were unable to recover from either of their homes, and that was the murder weapon as well as the stun gun. They decided to use Katrina to help them find these items, and they began working with her and offered her a reduced sentence in exchange for those items. Katrina agreed and led police to the stables where she worked and pointed to the area where she said the items had been buried. There, just below the surface of the dirt, they unearthed the stun gun as well as a large kitchen knife. When Sarah was first arrested, she was acting very smooth and calm about everything. She didn't seem to worry about anything and almost seemed like she wanted to cooperate with the police. But the moment they presented her with evidence proving that her cell phone had pinged at the home of Sadie Hartley, her demeanor completely changed. She refused to answer any questions and continued to reply to every question with no comment. She thought that she had masterminded this perfect murder, but quickly after her arrest, she's being slapped in the face with evidence to prove that she was at that home. In July 2016, the trial began and lasted just over a month. It was revealed during court that on the day of the murder, Sarah Williams had faked being sick while at work at the chill factory so that she could go home and have an alibi. But the jury was shown CCTV footage of Sarah's car arriving at Sadie's home and then again eventually leaving. On August 17, 2016, after seven hours and nine minutes, the jury returned with a guilty verdict. Both Sarah Williams and Katrina Walsh were found guilty of murder. Sarah Williams was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison, and Katrina Walsh was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Now, a lot of people question whether Ian Johnston had some sort of involvement with this case. And while I can see why people would think that, the police ruled him out almost immediately. Many people feel a lot of anger and blame him ultimately for Sadie's murder. They feel that had he not been having this sexting relationship in the days leading up to her death, that maybe things would have ended differently. Of course, you can say and think up a ton of what ifs in this case. What if he never met her completely? I personally do not believe... That Ian Johnston had any idea that this would all happen. I feel like he was a man who enjoyed the attention from a younger woman and entertained those text messages with flirty texts back. Ian has apologized profusely for his actions, and he said, quote, If people feel that in some way that I've let them down and that I'm responsible by texting, I'm profoundly sorry for that, and I'll regret it forever. I never for one minute believed that a few chuck-away ridiculous texts could ever lead to such atrocious events and such unimaginable loss for not just me, I know that, for Sadie's family, her kids, and our friends. Ian also went on to say that he was just in a really poor place and was vulnerable because he was caring for his terminally ill mother when he and Sarah began talking again. He said it was a bit of light relief talking to her. Sadie's two children have to go on living their lives without their amazing mother. Her son Harry said in a victim's impact statement that they got some justice, but it will never be enough. It will never bring back his mom. And that for the family and friends of Sadie, the pain and the grief will never end. These two women plotted and planned for over a year the murder of this innocent woman, all because Sarah thought she could win back Ian. It was a senseless attack, and thankfully, these two killers weren't as smart as they thought they were. As I stated at the beginning of this episode, one of the things that caught my attention about this case was a very chilling and pretty disturbing mugshot. The mugshot has been referred to as the zombie mugshot, and it's the mugshot of Katrina Walsh. Though she wasn't the mastermind of this entire murder, she played a very solid role in it and helped formulate this plan. I think you guys will agree at how scary and unsettling her mugshot is. So make sure that you are a part of our Facebook group. If you're not already, you can find it by searching at Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover. And we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. Also, make sure you follow us over on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you want more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at the same username of crimeaholics.podcast. Lastly, if you guys wish to follow me personally, you can do so on Instagram at Crimaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's episode. Until next time, be aware and take care.